This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast on uh, how to treat prostate cancer and protect your heart at the same time. And with me today, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Michael Bivens, who's a urologist at the uh, Urology Centers of Alabama. We have also um, uh, Molly DeShazo, who is an oncologist, medical oncologist, also at the Ur- Urology Centers of Alabama. And of course, uh, Dr. Carrie Lenneman, who's director of cardio-oncology program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And then there's me who has a prostate and have some concern, you know, about the, the, the state of prostate cancer. So hopefully we can talk about it. Uh, so welcome on this beautiful Sunday. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this, uh, Mike and Molly and Carrie. We'll try to um, uh, discuss, you know, briefly during this podcast today, we'll, we'll discuss about the problem with prostate cancer. Um, Mike is going to help us also talk a little bit about the PSA. What does it mean and, and when do we need to be concerned? Uh, we'll discuss what is a um, localized prostate cancer. We'll talk a little bit about this, uh, the treatment, which is uh, the mainstay of uh, treatment of uh, prostate cancer, which is the androgen deprivation therapy or ADT. Finally, talk about the advanced prostate cancer and, and we'll finish up with Carrie and discuss maybe some of the uh, side effects of the cardiovascular risk in patients that we treat uh, with uh, prostate cancer. So, um, and welcome, you know, Carrie, who just joined us. Thank you for uh, being here today uh, in between uh, softball games and, and uh, soccer practice and uh, whatever goes on on Sunday afternoon. Thank you for being here. Mike, let's get started. And, um, you know, it seems like, you know, if you're a guy, if you don't die from the heart, uh, the prostate is going to get you. Tell us a little bit about the prostate cancer and it seems to be a growing problem. Well, I think, first of all, to take a step back and say, what is the prostate? Uh, the prostate gland is a gland that only men have, and it sits in the pelvis. And the whole purpose of the prostate is a fertility organ. So if a man did not have a prostate, he could not fertilize. And so, and, and that's, just, that's the whole point purpose of the prostate gland. We know that as men get older, the gland can grow. And it can cause symptoms and more with just symptoms, obstructive symptoms. But, you know, there, there are a certain subset of populations that are prone to prostate cancer. And so as we look at prostate cancer, to really, really understand where we are today, we really have to understand where we came from. And if we look at, we'll take a stroll back, you know, 30, 40 years. When you look at prior to 1978, 1980, you know, the, the vast majority, we didn't have any great screening tools. And we know that in all cancers, and Molly probably can attest to that, that that survival is definitely linked to good screening protocols. And so what we found was that you had a significant number of men that were advanced stage at diagnosis. And they're five-year, and actually, if you look at prostate cancer, prostate cancer is really unique in that typical cancers, when as you measure them, they're typically measured on five-year survivals. Where today, prostate cancer now is measured on a 20-year, oh, excuse me, 15-year survival. 
And, and but if you go back 30 years, it was also measured on five years survival. So if you look at prior to 1980, the five year survival was you know 78, 80 percent. Reason for that is because you didn't have great screening tools. And so men were showing up when they had symptoms. And we all we all know that when if you wait on symptoms in prostate cancer, then it's going to be more advanced. Then around in the mid 1980s, there's this little test that came about called the PSA. And that was a game changer. And so you saw the survival curves just totally shift. Men were being screened, men were being cancers were being found early. And so you took that 90, that, that 78, 80% five-year survival, and it went to 98, almost 100%. And so, and then, and, and so what a PSA is, it's a chemical made by the prostate gland, and it should be in a certain range. And when, when it goes above that range, and we'll talk about that range. I, potentially, I didn't tell you what that range was at this point. Um, but, but when it goes above that range, then it's like an alarm going off in the house. You need to figure out what's going on at that point. And so, and so, um, and then in, if, as you stroll through the history around 2012, you know, the United States Preventive Task Force came out and said, wow, you know, they addressed screening in prostate cancer. And that was, and again, the game was changed because they ruled, they came out against screening for prostate cancer, screening using the PSA screening test. For prostate cancer. And it had a huge effect because what happened was you start looking at family medicine practices and associations, you look at internal medicine practice association and associations, basically they stopped screening. And so what you started to see was you started to see that, that curve start to shift back. We saw that. Um, and since then, what we realized, what we had to do was in order to come up with better screening mechanisms. And it's reflected in most of the different associations, whether it's American Cancer Association, whether it's American Neurologic Association, and, and most of the verbiage that comes out now says shared decision-making. So, so that's sort of kind of the historical, you know, sort of journey that we've taken with PSA. Um, when you look at the PSA, people always ask, well, what is a normal PSA? And I think that, again, that's a little bit of a complex question, but, you know, typically we like to see it in a certain range. We know that the chances of cancer your chance of diagnosing cancer increases as the PSA increase. So historically, that number has been four. And then there was some data that suggests that in certain populations, typically your risk of cancer may be, you, you, you'll find cancers uh, or in certain populations that cancer risk can be higher uh, in PSAs less than four. And I think if you just take four and four, from four to 10, and I've seen several papers that look at what's your risk of cancer between a PSA of four to 10, and I've seen it anywhere from 15 to 25%. So four became sort of the hallmark number. And then there was a, they studied that, and I believe it was at University of North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. And I think they looked at it at the, in the military that you can find in African-Americans and people, are, and people are, that have uh, family histories that even PSAs less than four, between 2.5 and four, that there are a significant number of cancers that can be missed. And so that sort of kind of changed the way we sort of address um, PSA screenings. Here at urologist centers, we typically, because people want to know, okay, you can give me all this data, but but give me something, Get, help, me, help me evaluate my patients. And what we typically do is we come up with, and again, this is just urologist centers, and trying to look at and look at all the data and try to help different um, you know, associations, try to help our patients figure out when should we screen, we typically use 2.5. And what we use is 2.5 or, or, or less is normal or 2.5 or greater is, is considered abnormal. 
And again, I think you got to take into account a lot of different things, family history, what have. And so the second question is, when do you start screening? And so traditionally, historically, that's been a man age 50. But again, when subsets of populations are looked at, when you start looking at patients that have you know, family histories, um, maybe genetically linked cancers, or when you look at different populations such as African-Americans, in those patients, we found that even in men less than 50, you can miss a significant number of cancers. So typically, we use age 40 for those people at higher risk. And we know those people are higher risk. When you take African-Americans, they're two times the risk. When you take people with family history, they can be up to three times the risk of cancer. So to, to summarize all of that, PSA, we do believe in PSA as a screening tool. We know that it's effective in saving lives. We use a PSA of, of four or four or greater unless you're at higher risk. And typically, when men that are higher risk, we use 2.5 and we start screening those men at high risk at the age of 40. Well, that's a um, that's a pretty good introduction right there, uh, Mike. So let's say, for example, I'm you know I'm 60 years old and um, and I have a PSA that uh, turns out that you know six, um, and I go see the urologist. I'm referred to you. Uh, what happens after that? I mean, we're trying to decide. You know, is this you know inflammation? Or is this cancer? What are the steps that you take there? Great question. So the first thing I'm going to do is take a good history. If you have any signs and symptoms of, of, of inflammation, then I, I would typically say, well, let's just try to treat you with some antibodies, try to try to tease out their prostatitis and then repeat it. You know, men that show up, um, I typically would probably repeat that PSA anyway um, and then confirm that it's elevated um, before I take them down um, a biopsy. Um, you know, again, get a good detailed history. You know, something as simple as we know, if, and it's amazing. Some people would have, you know, of course, you know, before they come in and get their PSA test or the night before, then I would tell them, why don't you come back in a week or two and let's repeat it um, because we know that that can affect the PSA. Um, but let's just assume all that is teased out. Let's assume that this six is real. Let's, do, let's assume that I repeat the PSA is still elevated. Then, then what are the next steps? And so historically, the, the next steps would be, well, we'll just proceed with the biopsy. And what a biopsy is, we're trying to sample the prostate to, to see if there's cancer present. And the other thing that you can find out is, you know, a lot of times you also can see if, if, if inflammation is on the tissue, then that, that will so, certainly help put you at ease. And so this could be the driver of an elevated PSA. Now, you know, more recently, we've started utilizing MRIs. Um, to 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 get a better picture of the architecture of the prostate, we to try to assess it, are there lesions that are concerning when we look at them, and you know historically insurance companies did not pay for screening MRIs, um, but uh, more recently they are starting to to um, pay for those. So there's a, certainly that has gone into the entire screening process, being able to utilize MRIs. Even, but but again, you know, it still makes us all feel better when we get tissue to be able to rule in or rule out if cancer is present. So even even with a MRI, it may guide you as to where you need to focus on uh, during your biopsy, but it doesn't rule out a biopsy. So if you have a true, true elevated PSA, as you just stated with a gentleman that's 60, 65 years old and his PSA is six, then that person, if it's confirmed to be that, then that person is going to need a biopsy. So let's say, for example, you, you repeat the PSA, my God, it's 10. And, uh, you know, physical exam was okay. You get an MRI that is abnormal. You do the biopsy and it's positive. 
how do you determine, okay, we're now we're dealing with prostate cancer and um, you're trying to determine, how do you determine whether it's localized or what do you call localized prostate cancer? What do you, what do you call more advanced prostate cancer? And then we can talk about treatment and maybe try to bring Molly along, you know, maybe. Okay. Okay. And, and, and so, you know, you know, Molly, she probably is definitely, in, well, she's an expert in, in um, prostate cancer and her, her area is probably a little bit more advanced prostate cancer. Typically, urologists will deal with more of the localized. And again, localized defining that is cancer that's confirmed to be in the prostate gland. And, and and not spread outside the prostate gland. And so let's let's assume PSA is elevated. We do a biopsy. Biopsy comes back, and the patient has cancer. Well, I think you know from taking a detailed history, you know what what if a, if a patient comes in and he has five brothers that have cancer, right? Or if he has a father and the grandfather has prostate cancer, there's some genetic link to that prostate cancer. And those typically can be more aggressive, right? And so probably that patient is probably going to show up earlier. And we know that when cancer shows up earlier, they're typically more aggressive. My thought process is probably going to be this patient needs a treatment outside of active surveillance. Um, so, so that's one thing. So detailed history. Um, you know, uh, uh, we, we will likely, assuming, again, you, you've done, a, you've done a, 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 an exam, the prostate feels normal. We call that as a, a, a clinical T1, T, uh, T1, T1C which means it's localized to the prostate gland. Uh, assuming all that's normal, at that point, MRI, MRI is, is tough in this space because you've already done a biopsy. So if you've already done a biopsy and you don't have an MRI, um, then getting the MRI at this point is going to be not useful because it's going to have so much inflammation from the biopsy. You probably can't get an MRI for six months. Um, but if you have an MRI that, that, that you got prior to the biopsy, then that may be useful because that can help determine whether this cancer is localized or not, or are there significant aggressive lesions on the MRI. The other thing that we can do um, to help us is, is genetic testing. Um, we have multiple genetic platforms that will assess risk based off of the type of genes and the type of genetic pathways. So, you know, if we have one of the genetic testing that shows that this patient is at high risk for, um, if left untreated, or this patient is at high risk for um, uh, spread, this patient is at high risk of death, then likely not treating this patient is, is would be a good idea. Or active surveillance probably would not be a good idea in this patient. However, if this patient has genes that, have, that, that are consistent with indolent cancers, then active surveillance would be you know, a good option for this patient. And, you know, interesting, we did a, we just did a review of all our patients with localized treatment. And actually, we have more patients now in urology centers that are actually on active surveillance. I didn't, I, I wouldn't have thought that, but we actually do. And, and again, and again, genetic, the genetic testing, the genetic scoring is, is, a, is, is key as part, well, as part of that process where we evaluate patients. But let's say that, you know, you do all of that, you got a patient, you know, and you, and you still could have, and then you still can have a patient that have low genetic scores. And they have low grade, and the grade tells you how it looks. It's what a pathologist looks at it, and you grade the architect of that cancer. And when you do that, that tells you how aggressive that cancer is. And usually, typically, historically, we use what's what we call a Gleason score. And to not get too in detail on the Gleason score, but it gives us a, a it gives us a pathway to tell just you know again how aggressive it is. And when I talk to my patients, I typically say the combined score between five and 10, but fives and six are low grade, slow growing cancers, whether it's nines and tens are aggressive, 
And these are the ones that's, that's, that are going to spread and become a problem and then everything in between. And say, and you can have a patient that has low grade, the genetic score is low. And you got, you know, you got to take into account some patients and you can, you can even suggest active surveillance. You can have only one core, small amount of cancer. And I know this cancer likely won't be a problem for this patient over his entire life. And they're looking at us and Doc, I still got cancer, right? I'm like, yes. Well, I, I can't, I can't live knowing I got cancer inside of me. And so that in and of itself, even though you recommend that, you know, that that you, this cancer will not be a problem over time, you still have to take that into account because they, you know, it, it's it's a mental aspect of them living with it. But let's say that you got, uh, you know, a genetic score that's a little bit higher, um, or you, you got you got a, a patient with a higher Gleason score, higher PSA. And when you that's another thing. So risk stratifying on PSA when you when you when you evaluate is you have low, medium, and high risk. So PSA less than ten is low risk. PSA between ten and twenty is intermediate risk, and PSA greater than twenty is high risk. So those patients that are intermediate and high risk, they probably need a little bit more aggressive treatment plan. I.e., probably active surveillance is likely not the best option for them. And then you can consider treatments such as surgery and you know, robotic prostatectomies. I don't think many people in the country are still doing open prostates, um, but if they are fine, a prostatectomy or radiation. And I will tell you, radiation is just, it continues to get better and better, more precise, whether you're talking, you know, um, intermediate, uh, uh, you're talking IMRT or you're talking proton beam or you're talking Whatever form of radiation you're talking, they're all good options. Um, brachytherapy, where you place C's. And in some instances, patients that get combination brachytherapy, which is C therapy, and, and IMRT or, or proton B. Um, there are other options such as cryotherapy. Um, you got uh, um, HIFU, which is high intensity focal ultrasound, as an option. And so, some, you know, we, we go through all of these options with the patient and we try to come up with a best option um, as far as treatment. So Molly, now I've got this localized cancer. Um, you know, it's, um, I've got some high risk um, and um, you want to do, uh, I'm concerned about, you know, the cancer in there and particularly cancer may be possibly growing and, and metastasizing. Uh, so how do you, even though it's a localized cancer and increased risk, what do you recommend to the patient? I mean, what is what are the options? I mean, Mike has mentioned prostatectomy, has mentioned radiation. Um, are there medical castration method as well? So, definitely, um, when the patients get to me, um, they don't they don't come to me. Um, first of all, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. Um, I'm really excited to be here. It's probably not as entertainment entertaining as my favorite podcast, Smartless, but uh, our language was. It was probably cleaner than that that podcast, but um, so um, you know when when Mike calls me when I'm getting involved, it's not an early stage prostate cancer. So early stage prostate cancers, like he has said, is treated by either surgery or radiation. Um, they pull me in when you have more what we call locally advanced, a bigger prostate cancer or a prostate cancer that is the margins are a little bit hazy. Either the surgery didn't go um, as we hope there, which is usually when there's a surprise when they get in there and there's more disease that all of our imaging told us before the surgery. Um, or there's a lymph node that looked negative and, oh, we get in there and it's positive. And that can happen even in the best surgery's hands. Our imaging is only so good. So um, he pulls me in if the tumor is worse than what they thought 
or it was what they thought, but they thought they had they had to get it out anyway because a man was having a lot of symptoms from his prostate, meaning symptoms they often have is obstruction, they're having problems peeing, they're having pain. Um, so the, the guys I see have a little bit more advanced prostate cancer or they have nodes that were positive. Um, or in some cases, they have patients that Mike saw, and unfortunately, from the get-go, they knew that the cancer was already in the bones or it already spread. So I see either locally advanced, so, you know, the ones who are in the lymph nodes or people who are metastatic, which is a fancy word for saying it had spread outside where the, outside the prostate. Um, so there, for the locally advanced cancers, the, the, the um, therapy has changed a lot even in the last five years. So um, we have some fairly blunt instruments for used oncology that are old and we've been using for years and we have some much fancier and newer technology that I think is going to change the landscape of prostate cancer probably even in the next five years. How I treat prostate cancer is drastically different than how I treated it five years ago and way different than how I treated it when I was trained um, 20 years ago. So when patients come to me, what drives most prostate cancers, what drives them is testosterone. Um, And testosterone is actually a friend for our for bodies as they age for women and men. People don't realize that women have testosterone too. It protects our bones, it protects our heart. And I think Carrie will get into that a little bit more. But what drives prostate cancer is testosterone. So the, the first very blunt instrument I have is to take away testosterone. If I take away testosterone in most men, that's going to slow the progression of disease. The data is very good for that, that um, lowering testosterone um, makes people live longer. So that's what we do. We can do it by shots or pills. There, um, there's pills now that block testosterone. There's shots that have been around for decades that block testosterone. What has changed in the landscape of prostate cancer, and not to get too much into it because it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated and could have a whole hour podcast on itself, but um, is that we used to just do... Um, we would start testosterone blockade and do that for a while. And then eventually the prostate cancer cells are smart and they're like, Oh, I don't care that you're taking away my testosterone. I'm going to grow anyway. So then we would add on another test, different type of testosterone blockade, which we call now novel androgen blockade, not novel androgen receptor blockade. We would do that for a year. And then the testosterone and then the prostate cancer is like, ha ha ha. I, I figured that out too. And I'm going to keep growing, whether you did this new fancy therapy or not, then we would use chemotherapy And that would work for a period of less than a year and then patients would die. Um, And so this, that progression could last anywhere from, you know, starting the testosterone blockade, doing the fancy testosterone blockade, then doing the chemotherapy that could last from two years to 20 years between where you started at point A to point C and then death, unfortunately. Now we have moved all those therapies like most oncology up to the front where we hit the cancer with everything up front. Um, and people do much better, just like kind of like antibiotic resistance, that if you use multiple antibiotics at the front, you have less resistance. We're realizing that the cancer cannot get as smart as quickly if we hit them from all angles up front. Um, so we call either that doublet therapy or triplet therapy, whether or not we use chemotherapy up front. The problem is, which Carol talked about, is taking away someone's testosterone has risk. Um, the risk that the men don't like is hot flashes, essentially turning them into a menopausal woman, which no one wants to be ever. Um, so you, they'll have hot flashes, fatigue, um, um, bone, increased risk of osteoporosis, um, 
it's um, of the stuff as an oncologist, I do tend being the worst there, been the easiest. It's about a three or four, but I'm not a man and I haven't had my testosterone taken away. So I don't know how that feels. Um, they don't like it, it but it works. Um, when we add on these other therapies, we increase toxicity. So novel androgen blockade increases the risk of, of cardiovascular side effects and all the side effects I just mentioned. So um, it's a numbers game as an oncologist, like um, Mike was saying, um, I have these blunt instruments and I have these fancy instruments and genomics, which we're not going to go into, which he was talking about these hereditary, hereditary things that help that I can direct therapy to that we test um, from the blood. That's going to change the landscape. That's what's going to happen in the next five years. We're going to be um, much more directed in therapy, depending on treating Mike's cancer instead of just all men who have the cancer the same. Um, we're not totally there yet. We're getting there. Um, um, but uh, my instruments are better, but they're still very blunt, in my opinion, at this point. So, Molly, if I have a, an advanced prostate cancer and, and you know, you, uh, you remove the prostate and you hit me with, you know, the triplets you know, therapy, uh, you know, what's my chance of survival in the next 10 years? So advanced has different connotations. So locally advanced, you can live, you know, at least a decade. If you have metastatic disease, meaning cancer outside the prostate, um, then survival, when we used to do that, um, I'm talking about a decade ago, was three to four years. Now we're four to five years. Now we're five to six years. And that's median survival. So there are men who have advanced, not, not just locally advanced, advanced prostate cancer who can live a decade. I mean, the, the curve is continues to shift. And even men who are what we used to say covered up with cancer can still live years when they walk in the door with me, which was not possible a decade ago. Um, I would say, you know, two to three years if you were covered up with cancer everywhere, liver disease, bone disease, that was that was that was a hope. And now that that is a, a reasonable expectation at this point. Well, I'd like to engage Carrie now a little bit and, and talk, maybe a, a, a expand a little bit on these you know, side effects of the androgen deprivation therapy, and particularly when it concerns, you know, the cardiovascular you know, patient. I have a lot of patients with prostate cancer. Uh, you know, is it actually, is, is your treatment or your approach the same in someone who's had bypass surgery, previous, you know, uh, myocardial infarction or, or heart failure? Oh, um, uh, Alan, th thank you so much for having me, Ben. Again, I think sort of like we were saying, I think prostate cancer definitely has evolved and changed in the sense that patients are living longer. So we do need to think about their cardiovascular risk and, and health going forward. Because as Molly was alluding to, we, we take someone's testosterone away and major things happen. And from a cardiometabolic standpoint, major things happen. Um, they have glucose intolerance, they get central adiposity, they can get sarcopenias and mus muscle atrophy. So you see a whole sort of landscape change as far as the metabolic parameters that are occurring in individuals. So when you have a patient that's got underlying cardiovascular risk, if those risk factors are not well controlled or they've had a recent, you know, MI or recent bypass, you may want to be just very aggressive at engaging the patient to be very aware of, you know, really good glucose control, blood pressure control, make sure their medicines are really well optimized. Of course, making sure they're on a statin to help sort of calm down the inflammation and help their lipid profile. 
and engage them to let them know too about exercise and how important that is to help mitigate their cardiovascular risk. And then obviously in a very high risk patient, um, there are, like Molly was saying, there are a lot of new tools that are out. And we think some of the older tools, um, the gonadotropin release hormone um, agonist, the like luprolide, that probably, if there's a way to maybe, you know, maybe move away from that one and look at some of the newer gonadotropin releasing hormone antagonists, like um, uh, Degarolix or um, Relagolix mouthfuls. <laughs> Those actually have the current data shows they may have a little better cardiovascular risk profile file than compared to some of the older agents. So um, sometimes we'll have a we'll have a discussion and we'll and we'll have a dialogue if someone is very high risk, especially if someone's had a recent MI or a recent bypass in the last few months and we're really worried about their aggressive cancer and we need to go ahead and get them on therapy and don't have a window of time. Those agents may be maybe more um, favorable from a cardiometabolic standpoint. And then, you know, also we do know that enzalutamide, which is an androgen receptor blockade, and then abirodrone, the androgen synthesized inhibitor, those two can cause some fluid retention and hypertension. So if I have a patient that's going to be started on those agents, again, I really just sort of engage them um, about education, about saying, hey, I want you to start looking for swelling, fluid. I want you to weigh yourself. Um, let me know if you're having fluid or swelling, so we might need to start you on a diuretic. Um, and, and we know that the hypertension is well associated with these two agents as well. So again, I just sort of engage them, empower them to be checking their blood pressures at home. And we know the hypertension that occurs with those two agents are actually independent of um, independent of steroid use. I mean, we think steroids cause some of it, but it's actually studies have shown that it's actually independent of steroids itself because steroids are often used with those agents. I have a patient that we've been uh, treating for, you know, his his hypertension and uh, he had hypercholesterolemia and he ended up with prostate cancer treated with luprolide or lupron. And, you know, he's concerned that, you know, five years in, into this, you know, we're trying to kind of control his blood pressure, trying to control his cholesterol, that he's seeing some, we're seeing some progression, you know, on the CT, for example, there's more calcium developing. You know, what, what do we have studies actually kind of, um, you know, study looking at this? You know, what is the best way to treat a, you know, cardiovascular patient who end up with the prostate cancer? Yeah, I don't know that there are actually prospective studies that show that, um, especially on sort of older therapies like Lupron, um, how to, it how medical therapy mitigates risk, although we know it probably does. But if it's already known and we see it progressing, I guess that might be a time to maybe Talk, um, talk with their medical oncology team to say, do we have other agents that we think could be potentially used? Because I'm seeing calcium progression in their aorta or I'm seeing calcium progression in their CTs that they're getting, um, if that is a concern. And if they're on optimal medicines, you know, high dose, high intensity statin and their um, blood pressure is well controlled and their glycemic index is well controlled, I think it's hard to know. And again, with from a cardiovascular standpoint, they're newer agents like SGLT2 inhibitors and things like that. We, we don't really know what that would do in a prostate cancer patient, you know, with someone who has underlying heart failure or um, underlying coronary disease. So hopefully as, as we are adding newer, more novel agents to our cardiovascular profile for our patients, we're hoping that it'll improve, improve their um, outcomes. This is when it becomes so crucial for us um, to interact with our cardiologists. I mean, Carrie and I know each other from UAB. Um, when I was there, um, more and more we're discussing, you know, 
having regular cardiology referrals for these patients, to be honest, it didn't matter 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, because they would die of their prostate cancer. Um, And so these were not issues that were on our our brains. And now that people are living decades with advanced prostate cancer, um, we have to start weighing the pros of, am I going to kill them from what I'm doing to them? Or or is the cancer going to kill them? And um, that's a really hard way to think about it. But once again, we have very blunt instruments and we have to use them very carefully. Um, So, you know, when a patient comes to me and they have horrible diabetes and they just had an MI and, and, you know, they have prostate cancer, what, what's going to really take their life? Is it going to be their horrible uncontrolled cardiovascular disease and their diabetes, or is it going to be their prostate cancer? I don't want to make their diabetes and heart disease worse and cause that to be the, the end of their life. Sometimes the prostate cancer has to take a back seat and get their other cardiovascular disease under control first before I start making it worse with what I'm going to do to them. So, um, you know, interdisciplinary care of these patients is becoming more and more relevant. I don't know half the drugs that Carrie talks about anymore, these new, you know, new hypertensives and stuff. I, and I can't be expected to, to know all these. That's why I need her and I need cardiologists to help me navigate this. Um, and knowing the drug interactions with the drugs that all these drugs are metabolized in different ways. And so the cardiovascular medicines are metabolized in different ways. And if we don't coordinate care, then we may be, you know, shooting shooting ourselves in the foot thinking I'm actually treating something and the medicine she's giving is, is making my drug metabolize in a way that it's not helpful. So um, this is getting, you know, as all medicine getting more and more super specialized, here we are again of um, very complicated drugs and their interactions with each other. Well, it seems like when you have a patient with prostate cancer, uh, the prevention methods are, you know, of prime importance and in, in working on their blood pressure, their cholesterol, so, their diet, exercise, Mike? Yeah, I had a quick question. You know, so we now, when you start looking at costs um, with these drugs that we have, um, they can be very costly and copays can be cut very costly. And we've seen a trend where patients are opting more for orchiectomies. And so, Carrie, one question I would have is where does orchiectomies fall on that cardiac risk? Yeah, sure, Mike. I mean, um, you know, I don't, I don't know there are grounded in a whole lot of studies when we do an orchiectomy to um, help basically blunt the testosterone production. But um, in general, we still know that those cardiometabolic profiles change that, you know, when you rapidly remove um, an organ that helps produce testosterones, that um, we do see patients end up having um, glucose intolerance. They develop, you know, unfortunately, as Molly mentioned, the hot flashes, all the other kind of acute kind of menopausal type symptoms. And then um, obviously they have like the central adiposity weight, weight gain, those typical things, which are really hard and challenging um, for individuals. So um, I, I think usually, unfortunately, patients don't come to me. They usually come to me saying, can this person undergo an orchiectomy? They don't really say, is you know, orchiectomy versus ADT for patients, or I haven't yet had that experience, but I guess that could be a potential for some individuals, especially if they, maybe for whatever reason, their insurance won't approve some other, the other ADTs that are more cardiovascular favorable than others. Um, that might be an option. Well, you know, I see a lot, I see a lot of patients that when you look and you say, well, you know, a three-month Lupron shot, it's going to be 200 bucks every time. And, and that's, that's significant to them. And, and then the conversation or, or Govix may be, you know, a hundred bucks a month. And then they're like, well, you know what? 
um, do you have anything else cheaper? Because with gas prices going up and food prices going up, that's significant. And whereas, you know, you could do a one-shot pop, no pun intended, and, and handle the ADT, you know, ablation portion with, with the procedure. I am getting people that, that are opting for that. And, you know, and, and, and I can do an orchiectomy, leave the epididymis. And for these guys that's mentally, like I don't have anything in my scrotum, they can still feel something in their scrotum. And they're opting for that. And so, you know, I just didn't know where the cardiovascular, if I'm lining that up, is that something of counseling, you know, something that I need to also think about uh, in addition to just counseling on, on ADD, ADT treatment? I think it's great. I do think that we do know that their cardiometabolic and profile will change with that. And then just, again, maybe having them engaged with their primary care team or their cardiologist, they're seeing one just to say, hey, you know, when we do this, just like as if we did ADT, we know that these things will change. We just want to make sure you're plugged in and that you know that you're getting, you know, follow up care because we're really working hard to give you longevity and good life expectancy for your prostate cancer. But we want to make sure that we're not, you know, turning you into a horribly controlled diabetic or someone who's going to be crippled by heart disease. But I think that's a great point, Mike. I, I honestly don't get patients really with, at that decision point, but I think where you're coming from, from your viewpoint, that's very, very valid. And I could see that as a good option. I mean, we, we haven't discussed much the quality of life of these patients and all the stuff we do to them. Um, I mean, this is not, um, it's not fun um, what they're going through here. And Mike touched on the mental aspect of just feeling something in your scrotum. Um, I mean, I had a professional football player who the weight gain just undid him. I mean, he was, he was a big muscular guy, his whole life, part of his identity, you know, he played professional football and he gets sarcopenia, muscle wasting, breast growth. And, you know, it became clinically depressed from everything we were doing. And at some point we just had to pull back because he just could not live like that. And he didn't want to live like that. Um, so th- this is, it's hard, hard work that these men do to, to be around. And we, I think sometimes it's negated because men just don't complain a lot of times about all the horrible things we're doing to them. And we need to really be careful about asking them. And that's a great point too, is that, yeah, you, you could have a podcast on the mental aspects of prostate cancer and prostate cancer and prostate cancer treatment. Absolutely. Where do you think we're going to be five years from now? Where's the research you know, going? Well, with medical oncology, it's amazing. I, I think um, we do genomics now. So we're, we're texting for um, what we call um, homologous recombination repair um, problems. So uh, genetic defects where um, that we can target with drugs. So this is breast cancer research has a lot of the same things. So you hear the BRCA mutation that Angelina Jolie had, you know, and she had, uh, these are people who have hereditary breast and ovarian cancers. We were a little late to the game in prostate cancer, understanding that um, there is a significant portion of men who have these HRR mutations who we can direct care with a lot of the same drugs that we're using for breast cancer treatment um, for men with prostate cancer treatment. So um, already in the last year and a half with new data that I talked about at this doublet and triplet therapy using all of our drugs up front, like we discussed earlier, I think in, you know, a year or two, maybe even three, there's multiple trials that are using um, drugs to target these HRR mutations that are much fancier, makes much more sense. Um, And other mutations we're finding that are common and there's drugs in development to target more specifically. So hopefully our, our therapy will be less and less blunt as we go forward. 
Mark? I think that you know, I, I think that you know it, it is something that's just kind of you know high on my radar is personalized medicine. It's pers- it's, it's figuring out how how to 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 address things you know, in an individual basis, and I think genetics and genomics are central to that, as as Molly stated. Um, you know, and I think that as the, the things that we have now, we keep moving them forward. We keep moving them. You know, anytime you introduce a new, seem like you introduce a new therapy, they're actually introduced at the most advanced eight stages. But I think then you continue to move them forward. So we'll continue to move some of these, you know, novel therapies forward. Um, I think we'll figure out who who needs to be screened. We'll figure out who, excuse me, who needs to be screened, who needs to be treated. We'll get better imaging. Um, we'll get better genomics to understand cancer better. I mean, even though we have what we have today, it's still, we're still tip of the iceberg on understanding the, the genomics. And I, I think that's where this personalized medicine, that's where things will go. We'll get better technology on, on taking out, in, uh, you know, and operating and radiation. We'll get better radi- radiotherapies or targeted therapies, if you will. Um, and we'll get better focal therapies, whereas you don't really have to, to, to basically operate, remove the whole prostate, radiate the whole prostate, um, you know, ultrasound the whole prostate. So that's, I think we'll, we'll be able to go there. I think, you know, immunotherapies will, will probably continue to move forward. And, you know, I always, you know, I, I, you know, I was talking to my partner, Dr. Bug, and I was talking about it. I said, and I just asked him, I said, hey, man, if you got diagnosed with prostate cancer, would you just pay for immunotherapy up front? And we both said, yeah, we probably would. We'd just go ahead and get the program up front. Now, there's no studies on that, you know, but I think you'll start, it makes sense. And I think you'll start to see things continue to move forward earlier on in disease. Interesting time. We are, and I do agree with Molly. We, we are totally treating prostate cancer different than we did 20, well, five years ago, but certainly 10, 20 years ago. And it's still evolving. So we'll see. Well, maybe we're not going to die anymore, either from the heart or for the prostate. <laughs> Yeah. How to treat prostate cancer and protect your heart. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, Mike Bivens, Molly DeShazo, Carrie Lenneman. Always a pleasure to get together, and uh, particularly on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Enjoy. Thank you so Thank much you, for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank us. You. All right. Take care. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.